0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here here is Vlad. We have made it to episode 59, and we have to welcome the guru of OT networking, Uh, maybe the guru of just about everything, uh, Josh Verges. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Josh, really appreciate you spending the hour, hour and a half with us. But uh, (laughs) first question, so how did you get to the I would say OT networking sites specifically. Oh. What is your background? Could you tell us what did you study and how did you end up in this, I would say like very narrow niche of uh, manufacturing? Yeah. Uh,
2: so I actually studied uh, power system distribution. My degree okay. is EE, e. mm-hmm. uh, but out of school, um, I mostly took interviews with a lot of engineering firms in the area, consulting engineering firms, uh, and i landed a job in a inc skater group at a consulting engineering firm that almost exclusively worked in water wastewater mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and i think in the interview process like my i had some electrical engineering interviews and i had some inc interviews and i just wasn't feeling anything really mm-hmm. until one of the inc interviews took me into the lab and i saw some function block Programming on the screen, and it was literally the first time I'd seen an HMI with any context to that. And I was just like, I don't know exactly what's happening here, but I can do this. (laughs) And so I jumped into that job, and then I had the fortune—I spent about four years at that company, and I had the specific fortune of that Inc. Group was about 15 deep at the time in the Dallas office, and I specifically got to do a couple of projects, and I got to work on a large project for a large water utility in the area on the design side of the project for some new booster pump stations Uh, and then that group also had an application services uh, basically a system integration group that did plc and hmi programming Mm -hmm. so i got to follow this job through that basically three-year period of the design the construction services meaning like the all the submittal reviews and working with the system integrator on all that watching these pump stations come up and then that company had the programming contract. So then I got to do the PLC and HMI programming on that exact same system. So really got to watch this thing and participate in this thing from start to finish to give me just an overall appreciation of all the pieces of bringing up a control system from design through programming, through startup and commissioning, uh, at least in water, wastewater. Uh, Josh, if you don't mind me throwing out a question
1: on on that so in your first job you know like relating at least to my like electrical engineering experience and talking i would say like overall double e's are typically not exposed to as much software in my experience Mm. you know than someone maybe in like computer engineering or, or software engineering how was that i guess like being in power systems specifically was there a pretty steep learning curve were you exposed to some like plc or automation or like what was that experience like
2: Yeah, I think it's funny you bring that up. So uh, you'll hear me say multiple times on this on this show if it comes up that like I am not a software guy. I'm not a developer. I don't believe I have great programming skills. I threw a poll up a couple of months ago on LinkedIn, really wanting to discuss this concept of uh, traditional PLC programming and HMI development versus uh, software development and sort of some of the new software development stuff that's kind of coming into industrial automation and Mm -hmm. basically what how the automation engineers feel about this transition and do they feel like they're a part of it? Do they feel like it's a completely different discipline? I asked that question largely because of my relationships with my customers and how I feel about it, knowing that like, well, I could never be that guy. I I don't have a lot of skills or capabilities in developing in other languages, whether it's C or Python or you name it. Um, But I did take a digital logic class, as Mm -hmm. part of that curriculum. And so that's literally what happened is just, I really enjoyed that digital logic class far more than I did a few of the programming classes I tried my hand at. So when I walked into that lab and saw a function block on the screen, I was just like, oh, this is, (laughs) I've seen this before. And I I didn't realize there was a job in the real world (laughs) that leveraged this. So it was really just seeing something I recognized and knowing that like, oh, I feel like I could pick up on this pretty quickly. And I don't know if it's unique to water, wastewater, or if it was just the platforms that the end users in the area. But that particular office and their customers at that time, uh, seventeen years ago, was I don't want to say fully, but pretty close to really adopting function block as almost the only six eleven thirty one language that they that they used. Uh, So for me, it was just a really easy transition to be able to go in and just learn the IDE a little bit and be able to do some. I guess I would also argue that relative to some of the other industries and verticals I've been able to see afterwards that water is a slow process. uh, And it's a little bit more tolerant of certain things in terms of from a control perspective for a lot of the major processes. So I would say that uh, my experience was it, it was relatively easy. I, I, I've seen some of the programming challenges that my colleagues and customers have and it's just like, oh yeah, I don't know. Uh, not having exposure to that, that looks a lot more sophisticated than what I did to turn on a pump and open a valve and throw a couple of interlocks on. You know, Not to say that there aren't some more sophisticated processes within water, but everything I got to do on the distribution side was relatively simple, I'd say.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and what about the transition, I guess, to the networking side? How did you learn about networks? How did you I guess, like then decide to pursue that. As yeah, a, so
2: what, what happened is um, we had a distributor that called on us at this engineering firm and would occasionally come and do some lunch and learns in the context of representing certain lines that they'd like to see specified on these projects, you yep. know, and through that process, Uh, they mentioned uh, a little industrial Ethernet class. So I somehow managed to convince my boss (laughs) to spend a little budget to send me to this training class, which was in 2006. Uh, It was taught taught by uh, now a very good friend of mine, uh, Barry Baker, who also is in OT networking. And this class just blew my, I sat there for two days, just completely more glued uh, and just on fire for like, more interested in this than I'd ever been in any college class I'd ever taken. And I took furious notes. I still have my binder from this 2006 training, 12 pages. I mean, what was it like, about it
1: that was like so interesting, I guess, because I maybe I, don't get as excited about networks. But yeah, it's still I completely topic. get it.
2: So. I, I think for, for, for me, it was the fact that I had been involved in some commissionings and startups where there were issues related to like, there was a foundation field bus gateway that was connecting some instrumentation and then SCADA was reading it over Modbus and the gateway would just lock up from time to time. Sometimes it was two days, sometimes it was a week. And I'd seen a dozen problems like that in the field. And it always felt like, well, we know something's happening on the network, but everyone's kind of blind. And it felt like you couldn't look in the box. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I take this class and I learn and realize like, "No, no, no, we can actually with the right tools, the right equipment, we can look inside that black box. And we can often find the root cause for problems like this. And so that fascinated me that as automation engineers, we were deploying these control systems and then plugging them into this black box and then kind of pretending like literally the black box is a mystery <laughs> <laughs> like until it gets to the PLC or gets to the HMI. Like, we don't really know what's happening. And so I was fascinated with the idea that we could go back to these customers or in these situations and actually provide good troubleshooting, uh, also add to these specs and capabilities for these systems to give the customers more visibility and tell them it doesn't have to be this way. There's a lot of things we can do to where when problems like this come up, we can uh, narrow in very quickly on what the problem is. So that's why for two days, I was just, half of the notes are in red and those notes were like, I wanna take this back and put these into like standard specs for the customers. I was also taking it to the programming lead saying, you know, when there's problems like this, we could actually do something about that. We don't have to wait on the vendor. Like we mm-hmm. could actually investigate this ourselves. And there's a if if I get a chance to do a little demo later, I'll show you an example that I always wanted to take back to to, to that boss of mine.
1: <laughs> okay, sounds good. What about the? So I guess how long after that class did you decide to go off on your own and found TraceRoute? Was that pretty quickly as a transition, or did you see maybe uh, different opportunities on that
2: side before you decided to jump in? So that same company that taught that training class, um, I'd say four years into that control system job, uh, I reached out to my contact there and said, like, hey, uh, I was just kind of itching to kind of maybe get exposure to different systems, different verticals. I was just kind of open and kind of looking. I felt like it was time to make a move. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked, like, was anybody else in that class? Like, what companies are they from? Do you think anybody's looking? You know my resume a little bit. And he's just like, well, would you ever want to work for us? And I was like, why would I? why would I work for a distributor? Like, what what would my role be? I didn't understand what the fit was. And I thought the trainer of that class, I honestly thought he was like some contract guy. And he was just like, no, 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 he worked for us. And yes, we are a distributor, we sell product, but we also have engineers on staff to work with our customers, both in the context of like tech support for the lines we're supporting, but also in the context of just billable projects, they need help on designing and lighting up these networks. And so uh, I actually ended up going there and I spent almost a decade. Uh, When I started at that company, they were 17, I was employee number 17. And basically one week into the job, I was the one and only engineer. Uh, So I was the engineer for the line card. I was the engineer for billable projects. I I was everything. And then over the course of nine years, when I left, uh, there was 11 engineers against 50 total employees. So a pretty tech heavy distributor mm-hmm, right? especially when you think that like the context was only the network they didn't sell plcs or hmis it oh, was only wow. industrial networking equipment
1: okay.
2: so a very tech heavy distributor uh, what convinced me to go out on my own was primarily that from a consulting standpoint and a long-term engagement not just a single project but really wanting to i, I really enjoyed like meeting new customers and setting up these relationships that weren't going to be a single project relationship that were really going to be I, I wanna help you grow this system as you and your company are growing. And I also wanted the ability to do that maybe independent of a line card. Um, I, I always found it challenging. Uh, I loved a lot of the products we had on that line card, but I was also aware of products that weren't mm-hmm. <laughs> on the line card. And also things would happen outside of my control, mergers and acquisitions. Perfect example is the the MGuard product that Phoenix Contact has today that originally was called the Anominate M guard Nominate being a German company. And mm-hmm. we, we had that product on the line card and I really liked it. It was a really good, small industrial firewall. And then Phoenix contact bought a Nominate and that company didn't have a, my company didn't have a relationship with Phoenix contact. So yeah. I lost access to this industrial firewall that I used to heavily recommend and use on projects. And at mm-hmm. the time, it's a completely different landscape 10 years ago to today at the time, the number of options I had for quality industrial firewalls on the DIN rail was probably about two. Oh, <laughs> that, wow. that, that, was the, that was the breadth of selection if I'm really considering like quality solutions. And over that 10 years, and especially in the last five, you know, I've watched that hockey stick. I used to maintain a, this matrix. of It was two products, and then now there was three vendors. Now there's five vendors. Now each of the five vendors has three different products. And wow. I started building this matrix of features and capabilities against the model to help customers navigate. Like, okay, well now I have 25 choices. Which one of these things do I need for my project?
1: I mean, hopefully that's open uh, open record. I don't know if you ever shared that matrix because I'd be definitely interested on the on the. It networking is. It side is
2: still there. out on the web. <laughs> and I've, I've, uh, there's a there's a guy over in England that started a GitHub page that kind of wow. is tracking. I had done a blog post that he saw, uh, which goes over kind of this exact topic, the fact that Mm -hmm. the security product space has expanded tremendously in the last couple of years, and that's great news for end users that now they have all these options. Mm -hmm. So this post kind of goes through different categories like firewalls, remote access, data diodes, and the different vendors that participate. And so Rob actually started a GitHub page to track this and let multiple people contribute and kind of add to it as they hear of one that maybe other people in another geographic area or vertical haven't heard of. So yeah, rapidly expanding. And I'm glad that there's a lot of community contribution to keeping tabs on this and helping yep. customers and integrators kind of stay in the loop.
1: Josh, before we before we dive in a bit deeper into Traceroute, I wanted to ask you a question on a comment you made, which was going to oh a course that was specific to industrial networks, right? And so I I would say that that I personally, you know, like when people ask me for like a networking, I would say resource or how to get into understanding networking a little bit better, Mm -hmm. Um, I usually recommend, you know, something like the CCNA routing and switching. So I wanted maybe to get your perspective on what's like the major difference between, you know, like going that route. Like, or do you think like that's sufficient or do you think there's a big gap between like learning like the IT networking side versus the industrial side? Like what are your maybe recommendations also like on that aspect? Yeah,
2: it's, I think that's a really good question. So um, certainly like all the engineers that I've ever hired or trained and have continued to hire, like there was a long period for which we would recommend pursuing your CCNA. Mm-hmm. Um, But I don't know that I would argue that the reasoning was for actual like education and training and context to industrial networking. Uh, I would argue it was uh, almost a marketing move. It was for a customer to trust you. Customers don't know. They're not aware of many different certifications, but most of them are aware of the CCNA. (laughs) So getting the stamp says to the customer, this guy has achieved this certification, so he's got to be knowledgeable. Uh, so the reason I push back and the reason I no longer, <laughs> like I don't require it when we, if I hire at trace route, I, it's not that I would discourage anyone from pursuing it if they want that education, uh, but I've been around too many people with the certification who don't know the information behind it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that market's a little bit problematic between uh, brain dumps and test king to where people know how to basically game the system towards the cert. And then the cert, in my opinion, doesn't have the value it should hold anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think I shared with you like that same training that I took back in 2006, uh, at, when I was at that distributor, I delivered a version of it 40 to 50 times to different class sizes. As Trey Stroud, I've continued to modify and change this thing. Barry, who was the original creator of it, he's modified. We kind of trade ideas on it and are constantly like evolving uh, evolving that training. And the context for that training is because of this problem, Mm -hmm. that we don't feel that there is a resource for kind of leveling up on industrial networking. When I put that word industrial on it, it's just the fact that there are some unique things, certainly about uh, a control system network or an industrial automation network that you're never gonna hear about or see about or read about pursuing the CCNA, or there's some great sites like uh, Professor Messer or Practical Networking that I think have great foundational networking info. And I absolutely send those links to people who message me asking this question saying like, look here to get these basics. Uh, but the reason we have these customized classes is because we like to put this flavor on it of like, oh, we've done programming, we've been around control systems, here are some unique things about different industrial automation protocols or system architectures or uh, just different considerations about remote access, all these pieces. So uh, it's a long-winded way of saying, I guess I would pitch to find, if you can, you know, industrial specific network training, whether that's ours, somebody like Barry's. Uh, I know a guy in Canada, James, who does a lot that are even more protocol specific, like he teaches a profinet class. And I think he's working on an ethernet IP class. I I think it really is valuable to get as specific as makes sense for what you're trying to accomplish. One of the things I'd sent to you is, we put together this little assessment. It's 10 questions, multiple choice. Uh, And there's a basic assessment Uh, and then I have an advanced one. And the whole purpose of that list of questions isn't to make people feel bad for looking at them and not knowing (laughs) the answers. It's to look at them and say, like, do you think knowing the answers to these questions would help you in your day-to-day job or help you level up? If the answer is yes, then absolutely. By the end of our training, by the end of those two days, you're going to have a much better understanding of these topics. And I think that will serve you well in terms of being a better uh, automation engineer that can kind of dive in deeper, like I said, and be less reliant on your vendors to troubleshoot certain problems and help you uh, fix things faster, basically.
1: And in terms of like trace route, I guess like diving in a little bit deeper inside of the company. So you've mentioned that you provide trainings, right? That people can sign up for, I would assume on the website for like a two-day course. What else do you guys do? What's kind of maybe the main services that you offer?
2: Yeah, I think the big items are consulting and design, uh, configuration, testing, proof of concept. Uh, we do audits. I, I, I tend to get very specific here and say we do network audits. We don't do cybersecurity audits. I, I think they're a different no. animal. Every now and then we get asked, can you give us a network audit with a little bit of a cybersecurity kiss? <laughs> 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 and I was like, look, I absolutely consider a cybersecurity conscious. And any time in our audit reports that we make recommendations, we certainly are going to have that in mind. Uh, and give you context for the recommendations, including cybersecurity context. But if you're looking for uh, pen testing uh, Mm -hmm. or uh, complete asset inventories and correlation with vulnerability databases to assess your exposure, people, process technology, all of it, that's a different animal, and I have partners for that. So we will do network audits in terms of your network infrastructure inventory, Mm -hmm. your cabling infrastructure, your system architecture, your... Uh, segmentation, which I'm going to smile there, because generally speaking, if we're being asked to do an audit, we typically know what we're walking into, which is the network I'm sure all of us have seen a hundred times, which is just the biggest, flattest (laughs) single network you can imagine that has just been spaghetti strapped together, uh, that has just grown, probably hockey sticked in device count uh, increasingly, you know, over time. Uh, so we'll do those kinds of network audits to kind of gather what's going on, what's the state of your system right now, and also provide some recommendations. And that audit typically leads into a design project often, if they're wanting to address those items. Uh, we get called a ton for troubleshooting. So basically the calls coming from the end user, the system integrator, sometimes the vendor, and it is something along the lines of this PLC keeps crashing <laughs> or our HMIs used to be very responsive and they're super sluggish or uh, comms that used to work between point A and point B are no longer working mm-hmm. or everything was fine. And the OEM added this new line out here on Friday. and Now everything's <sighs> trash. <laughs> a- 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 any number of those things lead to us going out and, you know, it's arguably not a full audit. It's a very targeted. What's the problem? Where is it? take me there, Uh, let me get some captures, let me look at your switch, or maybe even temporarily install the managed switch if what you have right now is unmanaged and gives me no visibility, uh, to be able to really do a targeted troubleshoot, identify the cause of the problem, ideally rectify immediately if we can, and and move on from there. So those in training are, are the big ones for sure
1: and you know like in terms of that process maybe just to help me understand it a little bit better right and again like i've heard of Wireshark, i've heard of a few other like tools that you can use to kind of sniff out the network so to speak but what's maybe let's say you do get a call where somebody threw in like three new assets like three new plcs a few like hmis and now the network is just slow what would be uh like obviously you know they give you let's say a decent network map and you kind of understand like the devices what would be your steps in and or approach to uh, figuring out what the issue is
2: you you said so many triggering words there so I'm gonna I'm gonna (laughs) Ah. highlight it I'm gonna highlight it real quick so let's break it down (laughs) so one you said the magic phrase the network is slow I love this phrase (laughs) one of the things one of the things we talk about in the training class uh, we kind of work our way up the OSI model in the training class so Mm -hmm. you know we talk about layer one and physical infrastructure. We talk about layer two and MAC addresses and which devices care about MAC addresses and three. And as we work our way up, eventually we get up to uh, layer four, application layer TCP UDP. And one of the reasons we talk about this is there's just a little slide showing that if it's TCP communication, the beginning of every socket for a TCP connection starts with this three-way handshake between the client and the server. Why I love this is as a network engineer, I can come in, I can span a port, I can capture the traffic and capture that handshake between the client and the server. And the reason that's important to me is in Wireshark, I can see the time delta between the SYN and the SYNAC, between the client and the server, which effectively tells me, quote, the speed or the latency of the network. How much time does it take the client to send the packet to the server and the server to respond? And often cases, not often, nine out of 10 times, those times are completely fine. They're completely reasonable, which to me as the network engineer, I'm saying conclusively like the network is not slow. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, uh, often cases, what we see after that handshake in the capture, I might see that a server after the SYN, CIN, SYNAC, and a- after the connection is open, for whatever reason, there's this like five second delay before a data exchange occurs or a 10 second delay, and I'm like, okay, you got something going on here at the application layer. It's not that it can't reach the server, but for whatever reason, this server is not sending the data it should be sending. So very quickly, we can kind of work our way up. And this is an important point too, as the network engineer, my job is to work my way up that OSI model, you know, verify are there any physical layer problems because 70 to 80, if not higher percent of the time, it's physical layer problems. Uh, and then to check kind of the switching, routing, firewalling if it exists. But very quickly, once I get past layer four and I can verify with Wireshark that like there is communication here and there's no timing problem in the communication, it's no longer a network issue, generally speaking. It is an application or a host resource yeah. issue. And we certainly have to rely on the integrator the solution provider the vendor package owner to analyze that packet capture and provide some thoughts on hey what's what's going on why why would your software behave this way in this case so there is that's what's also nice for me is there's a pretty clear line of being able to identify this is or isn't a network issue and then hand it off up the stack to whose responsibility it is to take it over from there
1: interesting i guess i i didn't think of it that way so what happens i guess uh, again, like that's like one scenario, but what if you have, I don't know, like many switches and a- again, like, could you see issues where like traffic is getting lost or I think like, you know, traffic not getting to the end device may be like an obvious to some degree, like sure. issue, but uh, like packets. Are you getting say it's obvious, but I'll the... give you
2: some great examples there, right? Like, let's mm-hmm. say somebody has done the work of, uh, they've done a network segmentation project. So their big flat network is now one VLAN per manufacturing line, yep. and there's some layer three switch at the head of it. I've seen you've done videos on setting that up on a Stratix before, so you, you know this architecture. Uh, that architecture is very dependent on a good VLAN and IP scheme, right, as far as knowing that, okay, if a device is going on VLAN one, it needs to have X address. If it's going on VLAN two, it needs to have Y address. The other thing that's super important there is that default gateway field that maybe before the segmentation project didn't matter at all (laughs) because it wasn't talking to any other networks. So what happens often in these cases is for whatever reason, a new device gets added, that that integrator doesn't know about the segmentation project. He just looks at the neighboring PLC, picks plus one for the IP address, configures it, and goes on his merry way. And so it's fine. It can talk to other devices on line three if it's the line three new PLC but it's not talking to SCADA or whatever it has that it that it's routed to. And so to me, it's very interesting that there's very basic tests we can do, whether it's traceroute, getting into that layer three switch and determining where is this packet falling off? Is it making it to the layer three switch? Is it making it to the end device? Because what's interesting in those examples is from the SCADA host perspective, Uh, if you were to Wireshark it. His request to that PLC would make it to the layer 3 switch. The packet would get forwarded to the PLC, but it's one way. The PLC is then seeing this request coming from an IP in a different network. And in its stack, it says, oh, it's not local to me. I need to send it to my default gateway. I don't have one. It dies there. So it's this kind of one-sided problem where from the perspective of one device, the SCADA host, everything looks fine, I'm sitting here, I can ping my default gateway, I can ping this other device on the network, but I can't get this PLC. So there's all these scenarios like this where you could have kind of, depending on your perspective and where you're sitting in the network and where you're troubleshooting it from, that you may not have enough context, but there's absolutely enough tools, whether they're native to your host OS or bringing on different tools or leveraging the diagnostic capabilities in your managed switches, that those problems cannot hide from you. Uh, That's arguably one of my favorite things about networking.
1: I have many more technical questions because I'm, I'm really curious about this topic, but I want to maybe give Dave a chance to chime in.
0: No, th- thank you, Vlad. And I'd like to point out for anyone playing manufacturing hub bingo that Vlad has once again said he has so many more questions for Josh, uh, w- which is my third favorite part of the show, which he says every time, Josh, which just means we bring great guests on. So I, I do have some, some questions. I want to play a little bit of thumbs up, thumbs down. But First, <laughs> I need you to answer the number one burning question of Vlad and half the industry. I need you to explain something to me. Can you yep. explain hat life because you are the grandfather of hat life. You are the reason why two of us are wearing hats and Vlad is confused why everyone is wearing hats on their pictures on LinkedIn. So can you please explain hat life
2: to us? Sure. This is all pretty funny to me <laughs> because, uh, as happens with many things on the internet, this started with sort of a joke post <laughs> where Mm -hmm. uh, three months ago, I threw up a post uh, of me and my son, and I was wearing a hat, and I said, one of the reasons I started TraceRoute is because I wanted to wear a hat every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this amazing community we have on LinkedIn and industrial automation, I'm just blown away by it. I've made so many connections and had so many great conversations. And one thing that had started to happen is I found other people that were into hats like I was. And (laughs) uh, Bill of Lucid Automation, I'd say in particular, I need him to post a picture of this online. I, I mean, when he does hat runs for Lucid yeah. and he does sample runs, I'm talking 30 to 40 different styles that he will wow. run. And he sent me this picture and I was blown away. He's like, what's your address? And so he sent me one. I sent him one that I had a similar conversation with yeah. uh, G of outlier. Oh, let me, yeah. I, I had this ready. This is oh, nice. a, stack, a stack of hats. We got, we got envision. Yeah. We got lucid. We got outlier in, in that post. I just, uh, you know, kind of jokingly said like, we need a hashtag for this movement. And I, I solicited the, the community response and Bill's the one is just like hat life. And I was like, oh, I edited the post and said hashtag hat life. And that that turned into multiple people also raising their hands saying like, hey, I'm really into hats too. Uh, and so over the last three months, I'm sure Vlad has noticed recently that there's just been a, a heavy uptick in hat circulation Within our community, oh and goodness.
1: I, I couldn't be more a thrilled about myself, it. So I've definitely <laughs> noticed.
0: Me no, and Dave uh, will I love, will love make it.
1: one soon enough.
0: Well, we have actually committed to that for the last year. Is so that at some point we will make Hatch, Josh? All right, I'm going to be point, all over. going to be all over yes. y'all about this. <laughs> Well, good luck. We talked about it at least once a month. And currently, we're still to the point at some point, we'll make hats and probably also <laughs> stickers, right? Uh, we haven't we have not got back. But no, I, I love it. It was it's been amazing to watch everything uh, come back together. And ironically, Vlad asked me what's going on with hat life about 12 seconds before we went live uh, last week. And I got to put my brand new hat that he hadn't seen yet, because I had planned to put it on um, in the beginning of the show. But I, I think that that that's it's I'm sure really you guys spot.
2: have noticed that I just—I uh, mean, I just love engagement on LinkedIn. Period. Yes. Uh, and so, anything to get people excited, talking, trading stuff, put a smile on somebody's face. Like, I'm—I live for it. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a
1: comment. Sorry, there was a comment on LinkedIn from Caleb. He said, "Hat obsession is a prevalent thing in process automation generally. I've seen mm. asset owners with literally dozens of hats in their offices." interesting Mm -hmm. yeah i've not seen it personally but that's that's pretty cool
0: i have certainly seen lots of hats Uh, i I will say to josh's sampling comment i feel like i'm actually sampling a variety of different hats i have Mm. had three or four different style of hats sent and so i get to go like oh i like this hat or oh i like this thing about this hat uh fun fact it doesn't make Purchasing hats easier because you then get to put them on your head, and they all feel slightly—they uh, all feel slightly different. But uh, but no, so uh, I, I I ran a poll uh, a couple of days back. I was asking about managed versus unmanaged switches. Uh, Josh accused me of promoting and or gaslighting him um, in, in in the same sentence. Uh, but so we had a couple of comments that maybe we'll, we'll go through. But more so, can you maybe enlighten us? Uh, and you're like, so let's say that we're your customer, Josh, and we're like, yeah. Josh, should I buy a managed switch or an unmanaged switch? Like, w- what is your normal spiel?
2: Yeah, I think this all got interesting because of a post that preceded your poll. Yes. Uh, and, and I made a tongue in cheek comment <laughs> that I realized later. I was like, mm, I'm going to have to circle back on this. Uh, so, to be clear here, my position on this topic, I can't think in 13, you know, I've spent the last 13 years specifically in industrial or OT networking. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a single time I have actively promoted or recommended to a customer. You know what you really need is an unmanaged switch. (laughs) Now, the caveat there is, and just for the purposes of going through the topic, there's a lot of conflation here on terms for two different reasons. Uh, One is just general education. On networking. So I think a lot of times the term hub and the term switch or term hub and unmanaged switch can get conflated when mm-hmm. there is a technical difference between the two. So I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh and then the other problem is uh I love you vendors, but you also drive me a little crazy because the vendors I, I missed 10 years ago when I could have a pretty straightforward conversation with a customer. About the difference between an unmanaged and a managed switch, it was pretty clear. Uh, These days, if you go to certain vendors' websites, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not just picking on one. Multiple vendors' websites that are in this space, you might see that they sell unmanaged switches. They might also sell smart switches. They might sell managed light. Yeah, that's my favorite. Managed basic managed enhanced managed professional light, light layer three layer three. And so now I I call it the spirit airlining of the industry. It's this concept of like, they had two price points and one was 1200 bucks and one was a hundred and they needed to find a way to like put some more price points in there for certain customers that are like, you know what? I need some of those features, but not all of them. So I don't want to spend the 1200, what can you do for me for $600? And so I understand why it happened. I'm not wholly against it, but from an education standpoint, it is incredibly confusing for the customer. Even if you, they decide like, we want to manage switch, okay? They go to a vendor who they like, they go to their website, they're like, ooh, wait, which one of these tiers do I need and why? So at the very fundamental level, I just want to differentiate hub and switch for starters, and then we'll chop mm-hmm. up managed oh. and unmanaged. So I when I in, say, go Josh, ahead, Vlad. if you don't
1: mind, I was going to throw in like one last item w- of which, yeah. you know, like I've seen a lot of instances of, and that's buying a managed switch, but creating ah. almost like an illusion of setting it to the unmanaged switch function, throwing that in and thinking like, well, we've got, un- we've got managed switches all over the place where that's not really the the case, you know what I mean? Like and that these, too, these have been in
2: these recent threads online, so I'll come back. I'll exactly, cover this exactly, point. Yeah. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, hub. When I say hub, like the, and the problem with this is there's not IEEE definitions for what makes a hub, what makes a switch. There are IEEE, IEEE standards for features on these switches, like auto negotiation uh, and VLANs and things like this. <clears throat> Excuse me. But for just defining the category, there's not. But when I say hub, what I'm referring to is effectively a multi-port electrical repeater. And in the early days, I say early days because, uh, and the reason this is important to bring up is, I'd love to tell you, I haven't seen a hub in an industrial network in 10 years. I've seen one as recently as in the last two. Yeah, I mean, they're still out there because industrial automation is industrial automation. People run their equipment into the ground. So if you 've got a plant that's been up for 20 years there's a decent chance there are some three com office grade hubs plugged in, you know with wall warts plugged into 120 oh, yeah. outlets in industrial automation panels and I say this because I come across them all the time in my audits uh, so a hub when traffic comes into port one it has no intelligence it is literally a signal repeater so a frame comes into port one and it is going out port it is just responsible for restoring the signal and timing and wave shape and making sure the signal gets to the next place. But it can't be used in any way to contain, restrict, optimize traffic. It is This is the dumbest of the bunch. And certainly if anyone out there has hubs, and I've done this before, I said in the short term, you see my long-term recommendations, in the short term, literally going out to bed and putting in some Netgear unmanaged switches in place of these three com uh, hubs would drastically increase the situation on your system right now. Uh, So that's hubs. So now we have unmanaged switch, managed switch, both of them, I would say the immediate benefit is they do this thing called learning, listening, forwards, floods, ages. So as they sit there and the system comes up, they're gonna slowly learn over time Uh, And another kind of misunderstood fact is I I think some people until they uh, take a little time to learn this or take a training, there's an assumption because users don't interface with MAC addresses, generally speaking, we interface with IP addresses. So probably a lot of people think that like a switch is looking at IP addresses to determine where to send it. But the truth is the switch could not care less about IP addresses in these frames. The only thing it's looking at is destination MAC address. And it is maintaining a database of MAC addresses to physical switch ports. And so over time, based on devices talking, it learns, oh, MAC address A is on port one. MAC address B is on port two. MAC address C is on port three. So maybe on boot up at the beginning, there's a little bit of flooding going on because it doesn't know where a certain destination is. But as soon as that device responds the first time, it's locked it in, it's in the database. So from now on, when somebody tries to talk to MAC address C, It only goes to port three accordingly. So switches are this first device that finally we have some more efficient communication and we don't just have everything flooding everywhere all the time. Uh, My asterisk there is if we're talking about unicast communication, communication that is one-to-one like Modbus, uh, like explicit ethernet IP messaging. We might come back to that later if we talk about implicit and produce consume. Um, So immediately there's this huge performance benefit and you've got your end devices not getting hit with all this extraneous traffic when we go to a switch period. So certainly there is a definite upgrade in going from a hub to an unmanaged switch. But now the next question is, well, what about visibility? You know, what about diagnostics? What if I wanna know what's going on on this network? I said earlier that physical layer problems are the issue 70, 80% of the time. And I mentioned that I love that you can't hide you can't hide a network problem from me. And what I mean by that is we've all been on these projects with poor cabling terminations or maybe EMI or RFI in the area or unshielded cables being draped across 500 horsepower VFDs (laughs) that the net effect is, oh, their HMI kind of blipping out from time to time or timeouts on these messaging or whatever. But I can see that problem on the network with a managed switch. I can log into that managed switch and I can look at the interface counters for a port. And I'm primarily interested in two columns, which is CRC errors and collisions because every ethernet frame has a CRC checksum uh, calculated. So between the end device and the ethernet switch, if anything happens to that data, the switch knows, marks it as a bad frame, something has happened in transit and drops it and ticks up this counter. So if there is a bad cabling termination that has a real effect in the real world, it will show up as a CRC error. If you've got EMI or RFI in the area affecting the data transmission on your cable, it will show up as CRC errors stacking up on this managed switch. So you cannot hide physical layer problems to me. And it's very easy to go into a managed switch, look at this page. If the physical infrastructure is clean, I'm gonna see all zeros down these counters. And I can say pretty quickly, okay, there's not a physical problem right now from uh, cable termination, EMI or RFI. And, and uh, you know, based on what I said earlier, boom, that is 75 to 80% of the problems we have ruled out. So let's keep climbing up the chain. So now we look at diagnostics and we can also look at things like utilization. Uh, you know, what is the bandwidth utilization on these ports that might trigger me on a couple of things. Uh, I can also look uh, at taking some additional steps on this network. We mentioned these big flat networks And so beyond diagnostics, there's additional steps we might wanna take. We've talked about segmentation a little bit. Let's take that big flat network, break it into smaller pieces and leverage VLANs so that we can uh, basically make it quieter for everyone. I I have this conversation a lot with customers about what exactly is the benefit? And and the problem is that uh, broadcast communication, one to every is inherent to ethernet communication. In order to be able to talk to your target, you have to ask the question on the network. You have to do an ARP call. You have to say, hey, who has IP address 1.33? Like, what's your MAC address? Because I need to be able to send a frame to you. So broadcasts are inherently part of Ethernet networks. And over time, maybe you get away with the native chattiness and broadcast built into Windows and some of these platforms on a 10-node system or maybe a 50-node system. If I'm looking at this with Wireshark, you know, I can take a capture and see like, what is the average packets per second in this broadcast domain just by plugging in and looking at this one uh, menu in Wireshark. Okay, it's 10, it's 20, that seems reasonable. That's not gonna tip anyone over. I plug into some networks and I might see 300 or I might see a thousand or I might see 6,000 and immediately alarm bells are going off. Like, well, this isn't good because if 6,000 frames per second are hitting my laptop right now without any port mirroring or anything, that means they're hitting everybody on this network. And PLCs and these embedded devices, uh, there's a lot of conversation sometimes about utilization, about building up these gig, uh, gigabit networks and 10 gig backbones. And I find the whole conversation kind of fascinating because short of ESXi and giant uh, VM backups across your backbone or IP camera systems, which look, that's definitely there on some systems and that's a different conversation. If we're talking purely automation networks, and we're talking PLCs and HMIs, if those utilizations are even reaching 1% on a 100 megabit link, my alarm bells are going off and I'm going to find the problem because that is not standard. We're talking about protocols that were initially written for serial communications, right? They were running at 19.2 or 9,600 and then we stuck them on an ethernet highway with a 100 megabit link. Like in what universe is that pipe Ah. supposed to be full? And the reason this is interesting to me is I make the point a lot that you are often going to tip over that end device long before you fill up the pipe and by fill up the pipe i mean if i'm looking at port utilization on switches to an end device to a plc you're going to tip that plc over and that that utilization might be at five percent or four percent it is not utilization that is the problem it's typically about the traffic that is hitting that PLC and what I like to call like the ratio of good to bad traffic. If that PLC is getting inundated with frames that aren't meant for it or that it's not looking to process, it still has to process them. It has to look at it long enough to say, this is not for me. And you can literally watch the CPU utilization on a control logics PLC, like in that embedded web server on the CPU or the EN2T card. And you could, you know, Uh, track that CPU utilization over time as the system grows and watch. Oh, at install, that was 60%. Oh, 10 lines later, it's 80%. (laughs) And if you dig, like it's part of, I think it's even built into IAB now. Um, You know, Rockwell like has recommendations about what the ceiling is. And that ceiling is not a (laughs) hundred percent. It used to be on like EN2Ts. I don't know what it is on the newer stuff, like the four Ts, but it used to be around like this 85 mark that if you're exceeding 85%, they're probably not able to do everything at max capacity and scan times and everything. And it's time for you to look at breaking up some traffic, adding another card, those sorts of things. So, all, all these things are kind of in the mix. And I, I find them all interesting topics because of like the misnomers for the ghosts of what their problems are. I think sometimes they get the wrong name and the bad rap.
0: Wow. Josh, let me. I- Oh, Hold on, Vlad. So we, we need to continue this, but we've got some people to thank first. So okay. we're, we're going to do the teaser. Vlad, play, play the music. We'll thank some people, and then we're going to continue this. There we go. Awesome. So uh, we would like to thank, <clears throat> excuse me, we'd like to thank Preston Hadley and Envision Automation and Controls for sponsoring this theme and their support of the entire community and also the support of Hat Life. So slow quotes, slow quotes, no documentation, horrible communication and shoddy support. Does that sound like your control systems integrator or retrofit vendor? I love this part, Josh. Look no further than Envision Automation and Controls. Envision Automation and Controls addresses these problems as they provide accurate quotes and record time, one to three days for most projects, as well as world-class documentation and support. You can expect quality in everything they do from discovery to delivery. Ray says, Envision hit the ground running on our first project together. The rapid quotes documentation and clear communication are what makes it easy for me to choose Envision automation and controls. Please visit envisions.io for more information or a rapid quote. You can email them at sales at envisions.io or call them. And again, it's very questionable that we're giving phone numbers out over the, uh, the live show, but Preston wants me to. So 812-618-5089. Uh, their mission to bring automation and controls to, uh, of the future to the present, one solution at a time. Their motto, you envision it, we build it. We'll also go ahead and drop all of that information uh, in the chat and the show notes. So before we continue, uh, Josh, I, I have a funny story of physical problems. Um, and I won't include the name to protect the absolutely not innocent in this whatsoever. <laughs> but I, I have a very good friend. Um, And they, he's on the sales side, right? And so great guy. Um, They won a job doing networking in a, I think they were re-networking a prison, right? And so they needed someone to come crimp, you know, Cat5, Cat6 cable. And so he goes out and he spends two days crimping Cat6 cable and terminating it, you know, in, in the plug. And then he comes back and he's like, Dave, I spent two days crimping it upside down. And so uh, literally someone had to go back through and, and re-terminate every end of everything. And I'm like, did you not do the jiggle test? And he's like, I didn't do the jiggle test. They closed the panel and they just all fell out. So um, (laughs) it was, you, you were talking about physical products, problems. And I, I I felt like this is probably the best chance I'll ever get to tell that story live Um, unless he comes on the show, but I don't, I don't (laughs) think I can tell it.
2: Well, well he is, he is live on the show. So, I know Vlad has some questions. Well, I was gonna ask if you guys will indulge me. I did I, I, I did put a couple of pictures together that if you guys don't mind me screen sharing, we'll put some color on some of these things we just talked about in the last 10 minutes. Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do see it. Here. Okay. Let me know if that's
0: coming through. Okay, I can see it. Vlad's gonna reconfigure the screen Everyone else should be able to see it momentarily.
2: And I'll set the stage here. So uh, this was close to a decade ago, probably. Um, uh, Dairy, uh, who today is a billion dollar plus dairy company. At the time, they had one manufacturing facility. uh, And the phone call that we got was that this manufacturing facility is having so many problems with PLCs locking up and shutting production down, uh, that they're just literally walking over and power cycling PLCs. It used to be they'd have to power cycle them every month, then it was every three weeks, then it was every two weeks, uh, as the system is expanding. Now it's daily. Uh, IT has put, and IT was outsourced at the time, uh, IT has put like a traditional network management system on the network. They've looked at the network, they say the network's fine, there's no problem here. Uh, The dairy told me when I got there, the engineering manager said, uh, he he showed me that IT had set up like up down email alerts for when a a node was down. So he just starts scrolling on his phone and just showing me the dozens of emails he's getting a day, which is PLC down and somebody's got to go power cycle this thing, right? Uh, And he says to me that at the time, you know, they're a rapidly expanding business and they're only able to fulfill one of every three orders due to the quantity of downtime. So you can imagine the money people are losing their minds about we need to solve this yesterday. Uh, I walk into the facility. I see a couple of things quickly and I have a suspicion. (laughs) Like, I think I know what I'm walking into already and I think I know what it's likely going to be. But we have the full normal conversation. I asked for permission to plug into the network and there's a couple of things I want to do. One is I want to do that broadcast domain capture. That's that one I mentioned earlier where I'm not mirroring any ports. I'm not doing anything special. I want to plug in and I want to see what everybody is seeing. Uh, And then the other thing I want to do is I want to run a network management package. Uh, This one's high vision from Hirschman, but, uh, I convinced the product manager several years ago to open this up to talk to any SNMP device, not just Hirschman equipment. So if it's SNMP enabled, which is typically any managed switch, uh, and I've got the community information, or if it's at default, I can bring those switches in. So you can see in this case, these were Cisco Catalyst switches. Uh, I'm able to bring those switches in and begin doing a couple of things. One, run a topology of the network. How are these switches interconnected? And two, start looking at things like utilization. So. These dual lines you see is they literally had kind of uh, redundant cabling between the switches. They're running ether channel for redundancy or increased bandwidth. So there's you know two connections between each of the switches. And what I've done here is this would normally be all gray. <laughs> and even in this industrial focus software, the alarms are set to like 11 call uh, or sorry, at 10% utilization, call it yellow at 20% call it red. That doesn't match my experience. So. I set those numbers at two and a half and five, (laughs) that if it's at two and a half, I'm calling it yellow. If it's above five, I'm calling it red. And so this is what lights up on my screen. And I've pulled over some of those individual utilizations, and you can see them here, 5.4, 5.3, 5.8. And this is exactly why the IT company said, like, there's not a network problem Mm -hmm. because 5% utilized. You've got 95% to go. Meanwhile, Uh, I'm I'm looking at that 5.8, and I'm just like, oh, uh, no, something has gone horribly wrong. (laughs) And so then, do you have a question, Vlad?
1: Yeah, I was just going to ask, so that's the utilization of the ports of the Catalyst switch that we're seeing in the center or in the side? I
2: I pulled off some random ones, including some of these switch to switch links, and I also had pulled some off for, like, end device connections to PLCs and things like that um so the next thing i asked was uh to take this wireshark capture and it was all a control logic system and so i had my suspicions walking in like i said and when you guys see this capture does anything jump out at you just immediately
1: well i guess before the network, I would ask, well, how many PLCs were in the plan, just so we can get like, maybe a bigger picture? Let's take a look. Like, what's, uh, you know,
2: looking... Because this these are just switches, correct? Let me take a look. No, so uh, in the picture were just switches, that's Let's right. Um,
1: I'm trying to, like, glance at the IP addresses. Um, it looks like they're not segmented either, right? They're all... Well, there's the 20... And it looks like it's one or two VLANs, right?
2: So what what jumps depending out to on... me, it's, yeah, it's hard to say, depending on how their mask is set up. But right. what jumps out to me immediately and what I fully expected to see in this capture from the problem description, I'm looking at this destination column. This destination column is all 239s, uh, class DIP addresses. They're in that okay. between 224 and 239 in that first octet, which immediately identifies it's multicast traffic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and so... You just notice as I scroll here <laughs> that this is all multicast traffic and it's hitting my laptop. Just plug Josh in we're just seeing the main
1: screen still. Yeah. The PowerPoint to uh, not, uh, not wire
0: not
2: the share. Right. No, we haven't yeah. uh we haven't made it there. Hang on, let's see here again. Is that coming through? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this column wow. this column destination here. Okay. Everything is these 239 IPs, right? Just every frame that I'm getting is 239 IPs. It's implicit produce, consume, Rockwell messaging is hitting my laptop. And if it's hitting my laptop, who else is it hitting? Everything. Everything. Everybody. Everybody. And so the next thing I do is I go to statistics, capture file properties, and I'm interested in this. Average packets per second in this capture that I took. It's 6,535. So there are wow. over 6,500 packets per second of Produce-Consume messaging hitting every node in this system. I think we know why their PLCs are tipping over. Wow. Let me ask uh, you this, Josh, on that like, sure. protocol
1: specifically, so Produce-Consume, is that, so I guess my first question is, is that a limitation of how it's built? Is it a setting that you could check where it's just going to a single device? And I would say also on that same note. So how would you limit that traffic? Is that like on the switch that you could regulate that or is that something else like what's the solution? Yeah.
2: So uh, great topic here. So uh, multicast messaging, I don't know how far back it dates in general, but in the context of industrial automation systems, certainly multicast messaging exists in multiple platforms. There's a mm-hmm. version of it in GE PLC platforms, but in America we know who's king as far as the control platform space. And so when Rockwell added the implicit messaging side to their platform, so not explicit, that is very clearly one-to-one messaging. They added implicit messaging, which is in, uh, there's multiple names for it, publish, subscribe, produce, consume, implicit messaging. Uh, They've gone back and forth on this a lot and they've made changes over the last several years, but for a, a significant period of time, produce, consume messaging was by default, inherently multicast messaging meaning if you set up a producer of a tag great even if you only set up one consumer of that tag from the programming standpoint in the plc program Mm -hmm. the issue is the producer is putting that on the wire as a multicast message and here's the thing about multicast messages that destination of 239 uh, it literally maps explicitly to a specific mac address those mac addresses are never the source of traffic meaning that a switch is never going to learn where it is located. In other words, <laughs> it's always unknown. Where is this device? So a switch's default behavior is to flood traffic like that. So an unmanaged switch is gonna flood every single multicast frame it sees. A managed switch that hasn't been configured properly is gonna flood every multicast frame. So what's supposed to happen is in multicast messaging, there needs to be kind of a cooperation of your end device platform and your network infrastructure. So the feature that we're talking about here is IGMP. Uh, The job of IGMP is that you effectively have two roles, querying and snooping. And the whole function of IGMP is when a new multicast stream hits a network, it's gonna flood at the beginning. But when it hits your querier, the switch or router that's performing the querier role, he's like, ooh, there's a new multicast stream here. I'm gonna ask who wants this. He's gonna send out an IGMP query message. PLCs that have been configured to be a consumer of that data, based on being configured in their PLC program to be a consumer of that multigas stream, they're going to raise their hand. They're going to submit what's called an IGMP join message. And then the second function here, that's what IGMP snooping is. That is the switches running IGMP snooping, listening on this conversation that is taking place between the queryers and the consumers. They're taking those join messages, and they're building up now a new database, not the regular unicast MAC forwarding database. It's a mm-hmm. multicast forwarding database saying, for this tank level, I got a join message on ports 2, 6, and 8. Next time it comes in, I'm only going to send this traffic to 2, 6, and 8. I'm not going to bother everybody else with it. So here's the beauty of it. We have a network right here. We have managed switches, but we still have multicast flooding. So what's going on? I poke around the switch configurations, and I'm assuming I switched back and you guys have this, right? Yep. Yes. Um, I poke around the switch configuration. Step one, great. IGMP snooping is running everywhere. We are 50% of the way there. The problem is the IGMP query function is not enabled anywhere. (laughs) So if no one ever asks the question, this traffic continues to flood. So I ask the engineering manager. I kind of talk them through it. Uh, I tell them, like, what's happening and that there's an easy way to resolve this. And it's literally one line of configuration. I can put it in this center switch. And I explained the whole thing to him. He's like, we got to call this IT company. They manage the switches. I explained it all to them. They're like, what's the line you want to add? So I tell them and they're like, what is it to remove it? I'm like the same line with the no in front of it. They're like, whatever, do whatever you want to (laughs) do. So I tell the engineering manager, here's what I'm going to do. And he's this uh, big old Irish guy that I love to death. And he looks at me, he's like, and everything's going to go green. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that's the hope. So this is like maybe... 10 seconds after I make the change and we see some of these links are going green. And then on this next screenshot, I'm gonna like acknowledge the status changes. Everything's gray now, meaning it's come underneath. And if I kind of scroll in on those utilizations, those utilizations that were 5.3 and 5.6, here's what they were really supposed to be. The traffic that's intended to be on those links. I mean, one of those is (laughs) 0.008. and instead it was getting 5.8. So I'm sure if we looked at a post capture, that 6,500 packets per second dropped sub 30, sub 20 in the broadcast domain. And literally the engineering manager pulls up his phone because it was frequent enough to where like, he could just stare at his phone and like wait for a PLC down notification to come in. And he's just like, my emails have stopped (laughs) because like immediately this problem is resolved. Uh, He runs to the next room, he comes back in with this big 24 by 36 set of drawings, and he goes, we're about to build the biggest dairy in the world, and you're going to help us do it. (laughs) And we got to do this project, which was, I'm talking, uh, it is the largest one in the world. And from an automation device perspective, we're talking about thousands of end devices, hundreds of people, even just the switch infrastructure for just the control system network is in the hundreds of layer two switches. It has like 20 to 40 layer three switches on the back. I mean, it is a monster. Uh, But comparing that original network, which eventually we went back and retrofit and redid that one versus the new one from just a planning perspective of proper hardware, proper configuration, VLAN and IP schema in pursuit of a a company that was gonna grow to be a global brand. Like I said, it's a billion, billion dollar company now getting all those things built foundationally were so substantial to them. And I'm so happy to get involved that early in the process, You know, before, before they built this new plant. Like it's, it's really just kind of an honor to get to work on those sorts of things at that sort of scale.
0: That is, uh, so w- one, that's amazing, Josh. I- I've realized that I know very few things. Uh, <laughs> t- to sum them up, uh, none of us know anything about OT networking other than a man named Josh, uh, at least on this screen. Um, it, it's amazing. I am confident that we haven't even scratched the surface. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, so, so I, I'm confident that we haven't even scratched the surface. So, I have an ask for the people listening to tell us if you're interested. And Vlad and I have been playing around with the idea of doing some sort of protocols theme uh, later towards the year. Maybe an OPC UA, maybe an MQTT, maybe an EtherCAT maybe some other ones, perhaps it's something that uh, people would be interested in having Josh come back on. I was thinking to myself, like, would it be like an OT networking 101? And I realized like, we haven't even gotten to like OT networking one at the moment. So maybe like we can convince Josh to teach us an OT network like 001. And this is like the prereq that doesn't even count. You just have to listen to it to have some idea of what he talks. But, uh, but but everyone, please tell us kind of your thoughts on that if that would be interesting. And then we can twist Josh's arm and maybe send him some hats and, uh, <laughs> and convince him to, uh, to come listen. Uh, I, I do have a couple of kind of like follow-up questions. So as, as we've promised, Josh, we have well blown past the hour um, as, as we do every week, but I have a couple of follow-up questions before we ask kind of the normal questions. Um, I, I guess the, the question questions become, are there resources for training? So you said that you do you, you do training. So I think the best training would be go spend a couple of days with Josh and let him do the brain dump and and help you teach them tools. But
2: beyond When's the next the, training.
1: Speaking of which, okay, I mean, is sure. There sure. A plan? So, so you know,
2: oh, that that's a good question. So to date, we have never done like uh, a training schedule with like an open course thing. I've okay. always, especially since starting Trace Route in particular, like. Training for me, for the most part, has been like I meet a new customer, you know, it starts Mm -hmm. as that troubleshooting call and leads to that design engagement. And I firmly believe that the training is vital in changing the course of our conversations over the next couple of months to give me and the customer some common syntax and language to have some of these conversations about the things we're gonna do. So the vast majority of our trainings are done for customers about to embark on some project in the context of, can I get us on the same page about a few fundamental foundational things so that we can have more valuable conversations moving forward. I've had a few that were random through the website or whatever they found us, they saw the training reference they asked. So I send them like, uh, here's the typical agenda we run Mm -hmm. But for a couple of different reasons, not the global pandemic, notwithstanding either, uh, we have, you know, we delivered a handful of virtual and instead of doing it in just two full days, we broke yeah. it up into five or six chunks and like two yeah. to three hour chunks spread out over a couple of weeks to be more flexible with the customers. So to be honest, every training we've done has been a little bit customized, whether it's cool. in how we break up the schedule, whether it's them looking at the agenda and saying, I do not care at all about wireless. Cross this off and talk about this topic instead. So I really try and work with the customer to give them the maximum value for whatever it is they're trying to do.
0: Okay. So, and, and and kind of like the follow-up to that, the answer could be, you know, go read the blog, but so are are there, no, but you have a great blog. You, you go super in depth in switches. I, I, you lost me somewhere around, you know, part three of the eight, Josh. It's at some point you just got so far deep. It's like, it's going to take me eight hours of Googling to uh, to get through the, the whole blog. But you, you get, you do have really good blog. So is there, what, what do training resources look like if people are looking to understand the OT networking side of things?
2: Yeah. So, and I think I'll probably work with you guys in terms of, you guys mentioned putting some uh, links together even for yep. after, uh, but I will provide links to all those resources I mentioned before because there's a couple of good free, uh, you know, kind of IT networking, like not industrial industrial specific foundational network topic Mm -hmm. training sites that I'm aware of with really great kind of Foundational info, walkthroughs, nice little animations in Professor Messer cases, YouTube videos, and, and I think they're fantastic. I think they're absolutely better than not having anything. Uh, step two beyond that would be, like I said, finding industrial specific. Whether it's ours, I'll share the link to to Barry's and his training as well. If you locate James Powell or some of these guys that are industrial specific and protocol specific, uh, I'm only aware of this small handful. The the I. I I guess I'll say this right now, short of making a commitment. But Barry and I, Barry and I, have been talking about basically taking this training that we both have been doing for more than ten years now, Mm -hmm. and figuring out how to make that into a book. Basically, take that training and make it into a book. So we've got an outline for it. I have not committed us (laughs) to a release date, but I do think it'd be useful because I often have these conversations with the customers and wish they would have some sort of reference after we're off that call when we come back to these topics. And it doesn't exist today to my knowledge, this industrial networking specific textbooky resource. So format and stuff, TBD, we're kind of considering a few different options, but I fully acknowledge that this is a problem. You know, at scale, this is a problem. There aren't enough readily available resources that are industrial networking specific.
1: And that's one of the questions we got actually on the YouTube channel. So somebody asked that they're interested in learning a bit more about this and implementing this at the sites they visit. They only come across unmanaged switches 80% of the time. There's Mm. also no gateway. So there's certainly, I would say like a disconnect, you know, on the uh, OT networking side. So any resources would be very appreciated.
2: I should also mention, and we'll include these in the links that I send y'all. Some of the manufacturers have a couple of good, things. And they're a mix between free and paid things. So I'll mention EtherWAN here. EtherWAN has like a course series uh, that is a, a, a free course series that gets into some of these foundational concepts. Uh, and then I know like Westermo and Hirschman have like paid training classes oh. to get you. They, they definitely, and Hirschman's a good example. There's actually kind of two columns in their training. And so mm-hmm. one of the columns is not product specific. It is meant to be foundational information. And, and then there's a second column that if you happen to be a Hirschman customer or you're deploying Hirschman, and products, it takes those principles and now applies it specifically to their platform. So the vendors definitely have some, some resources that are worth looking at too. Gotcha. Yeah. Josh, before and... we move on,
1: I was going to, I guess, sorry, they flip. Let me just close the door on the produce-consume discussion <laughs> before we uh... move on from that because I've certainly used quite a bit of uh, that structure in, uh, in manufacturing environments and I've never flooded networks, but I want to ask the question of uh... how would you... I guess is the only way from what I understand to protect against that flooding is to have a managed switch right upstream from the producer and then having, I would say it filter out the traffic. There's no other way. Even if you have like a flat network and then you put a managed switch like up upstream from that, that wouldn't necessarily solve the problem. Correct. Okay. Great
2: topic. And uh, by the way, I mentioned like cabling being like number one, this IGMP issue, it's number two or three for me, meaning like the frequency with which I get this phone call and this is the issue and these are the fixes is very high. And I I say that meaning like twice in the last three weeks, I've had new customers with this problem and this is the issue. And these are the exact conversations we're having is, how do I solve this? Are you just trying to sell me a switch? And I'm just like, okay, let's talk through all of it. And so he had a perfect example. Uh, I asked him to collect some captures. He sent them to me. I'm like, this is definitely what's happening. And so the question is, are you saying the only answer is to buy and configure managed switches? I'm like, no, I'm not saying that. Number one, let's get online with studio and let's find these producers. You tell me what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you the IP address. You tell me what device that is. He's like, okay, that's this VFD or that's this flex IO or point IO. And when he looks, I'm like, there's a chance, depending on the vintage and firmware and legacy and platform that you could change, even though it's produced consume, you may have a radio button option to change it from multicast to unicast. And so in his case, he had, I'd say, like a dozen producers on this network. And in 11 of 12 cases, they were of a vintage that did allow him to change that radio button. So he changed that radio button so that those devices would still be produced, consumed, but they would be unicast, mm-hmm. produce-consume. And so those are no longer flooding the network. But then he found one, and I can't remember if it was an older FlexIO or what it was doesn't like the only, (laughs) it only multicast. So he couldn't change it. He's like, what do I do? I was like, okay, well now you're coming back to the switch conversation. And then what you said is accurate, Vlad. Like if you can't solve it in the end device. And the other funny thing is I see that produce consume is used often without context. Meaning the programmer isn't choosing produce consume because he has multiple consumers because produce consume is beautiful. It's more efficient for the producer of the data It's more efficient for the network when it's set up right when you actually have multiple consumers. It's more efficient to do that than to unicast it to five different people and put it on the network five different times. It's rare that I've come across the application where they've actually configured it as produce, consume, multicast because there are six consumers of this data. There are three consumers of this data. So that's the other funny part of me. I, I say a lot that like I think some of these automation vendors have done a little bit of a disservice to their customers by not providing enough education about these topics and the concept of what they're doing on these networks that they're not aware of when they they do produce consume messaging because it's easy to configure and I agree like it's it's you know it's relatively easy to set up uh, produce consume message uh, maybe relative to an explicit message. But they're not giving the customers and the integrators enough feedback about, well, here's what's actually happening <laughs> when you do that. And I think when I asked the customer, I asked the integrator, like, do you actually have multiple consumers in this thing? They're like, oh, no. <laughs> I, like,
1: I mean, 90% well then, of the time, it's one to one, even in my yeah. so it's not. So then I'm yes.
2: like, yeah, then absolutely. Like toggle this radio button to, or if it's available. Or if you do have the multiple consumer thing, let's talk about this network infrastructure. Because... IGMP, if you look at my blog post about managed switch features that I think, if you can get through this list of features and tell me none of them apply to your scenario, fine. Go use it on managed switch. But IGMP is on that list because of this reason in large part. But I think we're all kind of saying the same thing, that that's interesting. Because likely, if there is multicasting happening on the network, it's happening. And I don't mean this uh, as a negative way to the programmer. I just literally mean out of ignorance. They are not aware what is happening as a result of this configuration. And particularly of the net effect and the impact of that, because it's absolutely. invisible. It's in the black box. Yeah, absolutely. And I w- so go ahead, Dave.
0: I was going to say, let me follow up with that, Josh. I, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about managed versus unmanaged switches, and we briefly touched on how bad it is to have a unconfigured managed switch. Which, well, wow. I'd love to get into it for another forty-five <laughs> minutes. Would put us solidly through the middle of episode two. Um, so. Uh, Josh has a whole series of managed versus unmanaged switches in a blog in blog post form. And we will go ahead and link to that in the notes. I guess my question is targeted is, do, do you have a step-by-step or is there a step-by-step guide of how do I configure a managed switch? Is that, I, I feel like that would be valuable. Is that something that exists in the ethos of the internet?
2: I think I got this question on one of these threads the other day, which okay. I, I didn't have the ability to absorb it and respond That's a direct LinkedIn response yet. But is there one answer to that? Well, this is why. So because I've got kind of two comments there. So one is I would say uh, this which managed switch blog post series post Mm -hmm. one is about like hardware selection for IT versus OT networks and some considerations. Post two is if you pull a data sheet for a managed switch and you look at the amount of features in these things today, it's kind of comical. And my point in this post is I'm not telling you that you need these 300 features. I'm going to list nine things. And not all of those are features. It's just Mm -hmm. context like diagnostics or security. I'm going to list nine things to say these things are relevant for you to evaluate and consider as to why you want to manage switch. Mm -hmm. To Vlad's point, then we start to get into the details of like, can I come up with a playbook of working through this list of things? I can in pieces. So Mm -hmm. you will see, for example, on our site, Uh, we do a lot of Hirschman and Westermo networks, for example. So I have uh, a post from the vendor on how to configure IGMP on their platform. I have a post that we made on how to configure IGMP on their platform. I say all of this with the big asterisk, which is to say, I will typically write those posts with a big CYA paragraph at the front end that says for most small to medium networks, (laughs) Mm -hmm. this generalized approach will work. And I do that. Because that generalized shotgun approach to that situation does not apply to your mm-hmm. larger systems. And what can happen when you use that general approach on the larger system is you can overwhelm the switches. We've, we've been called in several times to troubleshoot things where they're losing data. And the reason they're losing data is they're overtaxing the switch. The switch CPU is under sustained 100% CPU utilization and dropping oh, frames as a result. And that's because of lack of context for how to configure some of these things correctly. So I'd say my answer is for individual features, I can provide small playbooks, but for some of mm-hmm. them, they are very context and application specific.
0: And, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Dan, a friend of the show made the comment that he generally installs unmanaged switches uh, cause he's lazy or they're easier. And I, <laughs> and I commented, Dan, like I absolutely agree, right? Like if I was going to go plug it into to something, right? Like if it's Dave's like, I need to go install a switch in the house, then probably doing an unmanaged switch. Cause I can go to Walmart or Best Buy and I can buy something. And I feel like a lot of that inherent knowledge of, I can go and buy one off the shelf sure. is it translates over to the OT side, right? Or yep. we've got IT people who to your Wireshark and, and other Hirschman, you know, diagnostic information say it's got it's only at six percent. It's got ninety-four more percent to go. So <laughs> I, I the, the more I learn on the OT networking side, the, the more I feel like it's in more it's it's intrinsically important that we share this knowledge. And I feel like you guys do as good of a job of anyone over at app Josh Thank to, you to that. share that knowledge. But just asking these questions and the fact that there are not easy yeses, like it makes me feel that the reason why we have these issues in so many facilities is because information is not readily available, which is absolutely something that, yeah. uh, that we all struggle with. Um, For sure. Let me go ahead and ask you the, the, the normal questions we ask to, uh, to wrap up with once again, the promise of we'll bring Josh back to, to do maybe a uh, OT networking zero zero one class at some point um, at, at some point in the future. So um, career advice. I always like to ask about career advice, maybe specifically for you. Uh, and you kind of answered it a little bit. But if someone's looking to get into the OT networking side of things, where should we start?
2: Yeah, I think um, it's funny because there's always a question in this space of whether to pull from automation and train someone with automation experience on networking Mm -hmm. or whether to pull from IT and networking and make sure they don't back up into an e-stop walking through (laughs) a (laughs) facility. And what I will say after multiple hires and trainings and all these things is there's not a black and white answer to that question Mm -hmm. as to one being better than the other. I've had good cases from both sides of that fence, I've had bad cases from both sides of that fence. So for me personally, my highest, like uh, interview quality that I'm looking yeah. for in a candidate uh, is uh, I'll say, give a crap factor here on okay. the air. Uh, I'll call it GAS factors. <laughs> what I might normally say is that I just look for a high GAS factor. Because if you are truly like interested in learning this and passionate, Uh, I remember I did uh, a class basically before I hired our, I was interviewing three people that I knew to come work in BOT network engineers. This is several years ago. And so on a Saturday morning, I held an informal industrial ethernet training class at my home (laughs) in my media room. (laughs) And I was, because none of them were from it or automation, (laughs) but my message to them was, This is a super niche space and there are not a lot of subject matter experts in it. And in my opinion, within a few days of initial knowledge, let alone a few weeks on the job, let alone a few months on the job, you will quickly become a very strong resource for 98% of the people who ever call in here asking for help. And so my question to them was like, do you like playing hero every day? Because that's genuinely how I feel about the job is that you just kind of get to play hero. There's this like weird black box and no one knows what's going on and you get to come in and show them like, no, 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 we, we can look and here's what it is and we can fix this and we can make it better. And it's, it's just a ton of fun to play that role.
0: Absolutely. No, I, uh, I, I think that's interesting. It's an interesting perspective. Uh, and generally when we get answers like that, it means that we need more people. We need more people um, in the space. Uh, so next question, uh, Josh. Do you have a book or some content that you enjoy reading? It doesn't necessarily have to be OT networking related um, that you would
2: recommend. Uh, I've got podcasts I would recommend. Okay. Um, so Dale Peterson does the, uh, Dale yeah. Peterson runs the S4 conference, the largest ICS cybersecurity conference stateside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he does a podcast called Unsolicited Response. Yep. Uh, and I think Dale also has a newsletter Uh, That's probably pretty good to subscribe to you are not going to miss a major ICS security related like incident or event or vendor thing. uh, If you if uh, you join that newsletter, if you subscribe to that newsletter, Uh, and then there is the industrial security podcast by waterfall, the vendor that makes data diodes, Uh, I really like that podcast because of kind of their format. So the format is Andrew Ginter uh, interviews a technical resource and they get into the weeds and they get super technical and fly over my head a ton. Uh, But then they'll cut away from that segment for a few minutes. And then a guy will re-interview Andrew to say, Andrew, uh, here's what I thought you guys said. (laughs) But as the non-technical expert, uh Can you maybe help explain this a little bit better or give it some context? And I really like that kind of double education format of yeah. the podcast, so yeah, the industrial security podcast give that a give that a oh, listen and see what you think.
0: That's interesting. yeah, that is very interesting. I mean, Vlad and I, I can tell you on at least my side, have uh managed to correlate about zero percent of the things that you just said, and we'll probably have to listen <laughs> to the six times but before we could regurgitate anything other than Wireshark. Red bad, more than two percent <laughs> really bad you know kind of uh, kind of those things so but I think see, that's then, nice. I, then
2: then I did the good part is I, I uh,
0: communicated good versus bad you did you communicate so again I, I tell everyone that my biggest tool is my phone and I have Josh's phone number and if it and if I run into a problem I'm just gonna call Josh right like uh, Josh, I'm standing here it's bad. I need you to. <laughs> just let's jump on team viewer and you can uh, jump in or something along those lines. I don't think everyone has that, uh, has that luxury. Um, we will not be giving Josh's phone number out over air like we did on Preston's. Uh, but, uh, speaking of Josh, you helping people, uh, last question we have for you is
2: who should reach out to you?
0: Well, well, who who should reach out to you? Who do you want to connect with? Uh, who, who are you looking to help What any help that you might need?
2: Yeah, I would say um, so for who I'm looking to reach out to me, I think it's hopefully pretty clear after we've talked yep. literally anybody out there, uh, whether it's in the context of troubleshooting something that you have a suspicion now maybe we could find out what the root cause of that problem is, yep. uh, whether it's it's tipping over regularly whether it's we're about to embark on this brand new facility and new project, and maybe there's things we should consider in the front-end design here that we haven't given thought to yet. We would love to take that phone call and have a conversation with you about how we can help and bring some uh, OT networking subject matter expertise to the table. Uh, As far as who I'd like to hear from, uh, I'm sure you guys have seen for almost a year now, we've been running uh, an industrial switch um, gauntlet. <laughs> oh, yeah, I would say, uh, because I mentioned for 10 years, I worked for a distributor, we had two, maybe arguably three industrial switch vendors on that line cart. So I, I knew those intimately well, and occasionally would end up on the field with a vendor other than those. So I got exposure to one, two, maybe three others. But when I started Traceroute, I really wanted to hit reset, because I'm sure okay. I had some biases from 10 years of working with the same vendors. And I, I wanted to kind of pushed this challenge that like this vendor that I know is the only good, the best vendor at this thing. And okay. so I contacted every vendor I could and said okay. like, send me some gear and we're going to put it through this gauntlet test of these typical things we configure and these architectures we do. And I want to see what it's like to configure a product, whether that's one-on-one, what your GUI is like, what your CLI is like, what if you have a management tool, what does the management tool look like? And so we have tested products from Hirschman, from Westermo, from Antara, from Transition, from Phoenix Contact, from Wago, from Fortinet, Siemens. There's still a handful I haven't touched. And some of that is just literally trying to find yeah. <laughs> the human being within the organization to talk to. So there are companies out there like uh, Red Lion and EtherWan that have products in this space. And we would love to put hands on those products and continue to add to this list. I, I did a post about this because my context was sometimes, you know, the the end user just kind of gets what's sold as part of this overall package. And there really isn't any effort put into, is for the network, is this the right tool for us? Is this the right product for us? And my point is, there are some bad ones. (laughs) And there are some terrible, you know, there are some okay ones, and there are some great ones. So, and my overall message from this evaluation so far is there's plenty of good options out there. So there's no good reason to put up with a bad product in that piece of your, in that critical piece of your control system, because you've got plenty of good options out there. Josh, I was going to
1: follow up on that. I I would, I hope that that resource, you could send us maybe a link so we can put it in the show notes, but we do have a question on that exact, I would say, conversation. So Jonathan asked, how about a short list of recommended hardware for a small OT networking lab? And I think, you know, maybe we're not going to get into the details of that, like today, but, you know, I think, A lot of our listeners, again, are probably standardized on either like Rockwell or Siemens if they're from Europe. Maybe Uh could you throw up some, let's say like two brands that you would say just maybe have a look at those as potential alternatives so that people could maybe start researching and understanding what, what else is out there?
2: Yeah. And I might hear that question differently because the other thing I hear there is, and I'll come back to the vendor thing, but it's even just like, what is the right set of gear to be able to like put a lab together and do some testing? And so what I'll share there is exactly what we do with these vendors for our eval, which is what I try to get is I try to get three layer two managed switches. uh, And then I will ask for one or two layer three switches, whether that's just the DIN rail version of that same platform, if it's rack mount, if that's all they have to do layer three. Because with that set, I can kind of do most everything I want to see on a small scale. I can build a ring. uh, I can do VLANing. With that layer three switch, I can do some inter-VLAN routing. If I get two layer three switches, I can do some router redundancy. Uh, But I can basically do a small little mock-up of architectures, topologies. Uh, segmentation, routing, diagnostics, network management with those three to four you know three to four pieces of gear and get a pretty good idea as like okay, okay what 's it going to be like to work with this platform mm-hmm. so that 's my general recommendation about pieces of kit uh, if you kind of take Rockwell and Siemens off the list from automation vendor standpoint, which actually is my context for my answer I- i've said a lot that It kind of should make sense. And you've probably seen this in other products from those automation vendors. If they're making 5,000 different SKUs, maybe it's not likely that they make the best industrial networking switch. (laughs) Maybe they make a fantastic PLC or a fantastic VFD. But if networking is like way down on the list of priority for that automation vendor, maybe it's not their core focus or the thing they do the best. So the vendors I tend to look at and use a lot are ones like Hirschman uh, or Westermo mm-hmm. or Transition. A- and the reason is those are networking focused companies. And in some cases, like very industrial automation networking focused companies. All they do is communications. Mm-hmm. So- Interesting. Their laser focus on is on building the best communication platform possible and the way the best way to manage it at scale and all these things so that that's kind of my high level argument for why these other vendors are worth a look is just context about where they focus their time and effort gotcha no, that's really amazing
0: that. uh i would say that if you guys have more questions josh is a wealth of information and knowledge if you're not connected with them on linkedin you absolutely should uh, to get all the latest blog posts, and I, I'm sure you would generally be happy to, uh, to help answer other questions that are honestly so far outside the realm that Vlad and I can answer. Um, yeah, uh, th- that are so far outside the realm of uh, that Vlad and I can answer. But no, thank you, Josh. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I think we have once again, like the fourth time in six episodes, set a record for the longest episode ever. Uh, which Sorry. is not a no. It's not a surprise. <laughs> I, I tell Josh. I've told Vlad every time Josh and I get on the phone. I have to commit about two hours and it's two very good hours every single time. Uh, I have no idea how Josh gets things done, but if you guys are somehow still listening, uh, please hit that thumbs up, that subscribe button, rate us five stars on all the things you can rate us five stars on, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Audible if you're on LinkedIn, please follow us. Please follow the Manufacturing Hub. Uh, if you guys check out manufacturinghub.live, you can get all of the latest and greatest. You can sign up for a newsletter that comes out once a week that reminds you that we're about to go live in approximately an hour and all of the awesome stuff that, uh, that we have sent out. We want to thank Preston and Envision for sponsoring this. And I will send the reminder, if you guys would like, you still have through May 12th to get in the, the Change Your Life giveaway uh, show notes in there. Um, until next Wednesday. We'll see you guys all soon. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Josh. Thanks,
1: everyone.